0: So for the last four weeks, we did a sermon series together called Beyond These Walls. And we talked about the church and how the church is more than a physical structure and more than an event. And it was this kind of time to kind of reevaluate and re-understand what does it mean to be a community of faith? And today, as we begin this new series called With, we're going to do something similar. We're talking about our own interior spiritual life. We're talking about our relationship with God on an individual basis and how do we see and understand God and how kind of like what's our worldview and our viewpoint as we think about our faith with God. And the reason we're doing that is that the way that we view God has a profound impact on how we live out our faith and how we interact with one another. And we all have a default position. We all have a default posture of how we see the world that is influenced by our culture, by our upbringing, uh, by even the people around us, by our family of origin. All of us have a viewpoint that is shaped um, for us. And sometimes we're not aware of how that viewpoint has been shaped but there's one thing that a lot of that all of us as humans have in common there are basic traits and basic parts of our human nature and there's a story from the old testament that illustrates this human nature really well that we're going to start with today and this goes all the way back to exodus 32 this goes back to the time in the hebrew scriptures in the torah when god has brought the israelites out of captivity in egypt And has brought them into the wilderness. And Moses is leading the people. And when they get to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And as he's on the mountain with God, God is teaching Moses and giving him the instructions for how the Israelites are to organize themselves as a community, as God's people, uh, to prepare themselves for the journey into the promised land. But in Exodus 32, verse 1, we pick up the story with this. It says, When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Now at this time, Moses is not very well known to the people. He grew up as an Israelite, but then he was placed in a reed basket on the the river banks and was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up in the the palaces of egypt and then after he murdered an egyptian foreman who was uh ruling over a group of israelite slaves uh, moses flees to the desert and then he comes back with this message from god and he is part of god revealing himself to both to egypt and to the israelites and he leads the people out of egypt and then they get to mount sinai moses goes up the mountain And he's not coming back down. Forty days go by. And so the people, when they come to Aaron, they're coming to him with fear. They're saying, what's going on? We've lost the guy who led us here. We need someone to lead us. And so their fear leads them to want something to control. They want Aaron to make them a god, and so Aaron takes some gold, and he has forged a golden calf, and the people start worshiping this golden calf, which was a common um, pagan deity for fertility and for prosperity for the people. When they lost sight of what God was doing through Moses, their fear took over, and they needed something they could worship, something they could control. And it is a human instinct that whenever we experience fear, we seek a way to control whatever it is that we're fearful of. We seek a way to control and, and gain uh, control to try and alleviate the fear and the anxiety that we feel. This is a normal part of being human. But the reality is, and something that we start to experience and we start to recognize in our own lives, is no matter how much control we get, it will never prevent us. It will never be enough to completely prevent us from experiencing fear and anxiety. The people gained control over this idol that they worshiped and believed if we worship it well enough, if we do this, it will provide for us as we're in the wilderness. That's why they worshiped this golden calf. But there will always be something that happens that brings fear back into our lives, that some new challenge, some new circumstance, a global pandemic will happen that will cause us to fear. But our default position is always to seek control. How can we get control over this thing that is causing me fear? Now, that basic human instinct, It shapes and influences us in more ways than we recognize, and that's why we're doing this series, because in this series called With, we're going to be talking about how do we move out of that And this series is based on a book by an author and pastor named Sky Jatani. And the book's called With, Reimagining the Way that You Relate to God. And that might sound familiar to you because five years ago, we did a message series on this book. This is one of my all-time favorite books. Um, In fact, I, I had to buy another copy of it because I've loaned out too many copies of this book and haven't got them back. So if you have a copy of With that I loaned to you, I'd like it back. Um, if you want to read it again before you give it back, that's fine too. But if you have it on your bookshelf and it has my name in the front, I'd appreciate it back. Anyways, side note. This book was profoundly life-changing for me. It helped me understand my relationship with God in a completely new way. And five years ago when we did this message series, a lot of you had had that same impact. And so if you were with us five years ago when we did this series, I hope that there's something new that you will, you know, as we review and relearn this. But we've revised and updated this series for 2021, and I'm excited to dive into this together And so when Sky writes this book, when he talks about this posture of with God, he starts with the four default postures. These are the ways that we naturally um, view ourselves in our relationship with God, but oftentimes we don't recognize that this is how we view God. And so these first four postures can be described with this little diagram. There is life over God, for God, from God, and under God. And so I'm going to give a little recap of each of these four postures, and then we're going to spend these first four weeks exploring these postures. How do we recognize it when that is our default position of how we relate to God? And so life over God is the perspective that we just need to extract the right principles and practices from Scripture, and if we do that, we will be able to achieve what we need to to have freedom from fear. Life for God is characterized by saying, well, we just need to do things for God. We need to build his kingdom. We need to serve him better. And if we do all those things, we will be rewarded and find the freedom from fear that we are desiring. Or there's life from God, where we think that God exists just to give us what we need. We need things from him, things like happiness, prosperity, wealth, health. We need those security things. And if we just get those things from God, we'll have the freedom from fear that we desire. And the fourth posture, and the one we're going to explore today, is the posture of under. And this is the posture that says, well, if we, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and so if we are just good enough, if we do the right things, we will experience the freedom from fear that we desire. But what's common about all four of these postures is all four of these postures are trying to control God by various methods, but they ignore that God desires to have a relationship with us. This is the very core of who God is. In fact, this is why Jesus came into the world to reveal God to us and to establish a new kingdom and establish a new covenant with humanity was to lead us into this posture of life with God. And that's what Jesus revealed. Jesus revealed what that looks like and also how to find that freedom that we get when we experience life with God. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in this series is how do we move from our default postures into the posture of life with God. And so today we're going to begin with life under God. And we're going to look at two scriptural examples. We're going to look at one from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. We're going to look at one from the New Testament, from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And so we're going to go all the way back to about a thousand years before Jesus, to the time of the united monarchy in Israel's history. So after uh, Moses and Israelites leave the Promised Land and Moses passes on leadership to Joshua, And Joshua leads the people into the promised land and they form a nation. But they are a nation without kings. And a whole bunch of stuff happens throughout history. But around 1000 BCE, the 10th century before Jesus, the people demand a king. And so Saul becomes the first king of Israel in this time period we call the United Monarchy. But Saul wasn't a good king, and then David becomes king. And David, later on in his life, realizes that the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, this representation of God's relationship with his people is still a tent. The people have settled in Jerusalem and settled in Israel, and they've built up lands for themselves. And David says, I'm living in a beautiful palace, but God's home is still a tent. And so he says, I want to build a temple for God to have in Jerusalem. But God says, No, there is too much blood on your hands. You are not the one who gets to build my temple. And so instead, Solomon, David's son, is the one who builds the temple in Jerusalem. And so when they build the temple, there's this day of dedication. And God's presence descends on the temple, thick like a cloud, so thick that no one could see the hands in front of their own face. And sometime shortly after that, God appears to Solomon in a dream, and he reaffirms the covenant that he made with David. And in the middle of this covenant is a verse, and this verse perfectly encapsulates the life under God position. And this was a a verse, a promise that God gives to Solomon. He says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. God is making this declarative promise to Solomon within the context of reaffirming the covenant that if The people turn to God. If they humble, if they pray, if they turn from wickedness, God will hear them, forgive them, and restore their land. Now, this statement describes the life under God posture. Because we do something to this and we flip this passage around because what God is doing in this is God is making a promise where he is the primary actor. It's something he does. I will hear, I will forgive their sins, I will restore their land. Those are all choices that God will make in response but the life under God flips this around a little bit. And we read this verse and we interpret a different way in our minds. We say, well, if we humble ourselves, if we pray and seek God, if we turn from our wickedness, then God has to forgive us and bless us we turn it around and put ourselves at the center and say, well, if we do these things, then God must care for us. And so we think, if I just am good enough, if I pray enough, if I seek God enough, then God must grant me the freedom from fear, from anxiety. He must grant me the control over the things I want. But there's a darker side of this life under God posture. Because if we read it this way, if we take this verse and we apply it to ourselves this way, there is uh, a subtext to it that gets a little darker. It also says this. It says, if tragedy and terrible things happen to us, it's because we weren't faithful enough. And you've heard this before. You've heard this when there's been a large tragedy or a natural disaster, or maybe you even heard this said about the the COVID-19 pandemic that we're in that this happened because we weren't faithful enough. You'll hear preachers and pastors and people on TV make this statement, well, it's because we removed prayer from schools, or it's because the Ten Commandments aren't in that courthouse anymore, or it's because put whatever you want in there. That statement, anytime you hear someone make the declaration that this terrible tragedy happened because we weren't faithful enough, we need to think in our minds, oh, that is the life under God posture. Because the life under God posture presents itself as being devoted to God, but it is using that devotion to try and control the outcomes for our own personal gain. It's saying, God, I will worship you. I will pray. I will be humble. I will seek you. But then you better protect me from the bad things in life. You better give me the good things in life I need. You better protect me so that I gain. And that is not the right reading of this passage. Uh, That is not the correct reading of 2 Chronicles 7.14. But then you might wonder, well, why did God say that to Solomon? Why did God give that promise that if my people will return to me, if they humble, if they pray, they seek me, I will bless them and heal their land? Why did God give that promise to Solomon? Now, we have to understand first that that was a promise given in a time and a context that was given during the pinnacle of Israel's history when they were a united monarchy. But what that verse is setting up is actually what happens in the rest of the book of Chronicles. Because in Second Chronicles 10, the nation starts to fragment and splits apart. Israel and Judah separate into two nations, and they have series of kings, some good but mostly bad, and eventually, Assyria comes in and conquers the north, and then uh, uh, Persia, Babylon sorry, Babylon comes in and conquers the southern nation. And from 2 Chronicles 10 to the end is the story of everything falling apart. But then eventually what happens is all the promises God made about a remnant of Israel start to come true, and Persia rises up and Persia rises up as the new superpower, and Persia conquers Babylon, and Persia allows the Israelites to return to Israel and to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls. And so we need to recognize that the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that God gave to Solomon was fulfilled with the construction of the second temple after the first temple was destroyed and the return of the exiles that Babylon had captured previously. See, this understanding that this promise was exclusive to the Israelites at that time. But this life under God posture, that if we just do the right things, God will reward us and bless us, is a very common perspective. And in fact, if we fast forward a thousand years and we go to the time period of Jesus' ministry, this was the normative worldview. This was the way everyone viewed the world. And in one of the four accounts of Jesus' life, the gospel of John, there is an encounter that Jesus and his disciples have with a blind man that just exemplifies this perfectly. And so in John 9, verse 1 to 2, John tells us this. As Jesus was walking along, um, he's in Jerusalem at the time, he saw a man who had had been blind from birth. Rabbi, which means teacher, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? So note the assumption that his disciples have made. This man is blind because of sin, either his own or his parents'. There is no other alternative. There is no other option. But of course, whenever Jesus is given an either-or situation, he typically says, well, it's neither'. And so Jesus replies to his disciples. He says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now note, Jesus does not say that God caused him to be blind. But the man is blind, and this is an opportunity now where God's power is going to be displayed. And so Jesus does something strange, Jesus does this. He says, Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. He says, So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now, first of all, this is a little gross. I don't think anyone, especially someone, even someone who is blind and unable to see what's happening. Now, think about it from the blind man's perspective. He hears Jesus spit and then suddenly feels this mud on his face and then is told, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. Not exactly the way you think that a healing miracle should happen. But Jesus is doing something in this moment. In fact, John, as he tells us the story, is is gonna pull a fast one on us in a second because he doesn't say at the beginning of this story what day of the week this happened on. In fact, it's not till verse 14 we find out This happened on the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day when the the faithful Jewish people would abstain from all forms of work. And in fact, by this point in history, there was a long list of what was permitted activities and what was not permitted activities on the Sabbath. And what happens in this moment is Jesus is intentionally breaking a lot of Sabbath rules, so one of the rules on the Sabbath is you are not allowed to mix anything together. And so mixing his spit and the, and the dirt together to make mud was forbidden. You were also not permitted to use a healing ointment or a salve or treat any chronic medical condition on the Sabbath. Now, if it was a matter of life or death, you could do that. But a chronic condition like this man being blind from birth, Jesus did not have permission under the Sabbath laws to do that. It's also not permitted to bathe on the Sabbath. And so he tells the man, go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Now, one other fact that, that we need to know about this moment is this isn't just any old Sabbath. This is the Sabbath during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the, or the Festival of Tabernacles. And during this festival, on the Sabbath, and, and most days, but especially on the Sabbath, the high priest would leave the temple and go to a certain pool in the city and draw holy water that would be used in that day's celebrations. Do you want to guess where the high priest goes to get this water? If you guess the pool of Siloam, you're right. Jesus tells the blind man, go to this place where the priest is going to draw the holy water and wash yourself in the water that the priest is going to collect a picture of. (laughs) Do we start seeing a pattern here? And in fact, Bruxy Cavey, a Canadian pastor and author, describes it this way, and I love the way that that Bruxy just puts this so bluntly. He says, this is all intentional and confrontational. Jesus chose a forbidden time, a prohibited way, and a provocative place to make a point. Jesus wasn't just ignoring their religious rules, he was going after them. Jesus, and in fact, Brooksy goes on and he describes it as Jesus is vandalizing the establishment. Jesus is trying to tear down and break down all of these rules that had been created around what a relationship with God looks like. And so these rules, this over-reliance on religious views, consistently leads us to view our faith in terms of life under God. Because we think, if I just follow these rules, if I just do what the religious leaders tell me to do, then I will be protected, then I will experience freedom, and that's how I will get freedom from the anxiety and the fear that I feel in life. It is trying to get control of God by following the rules. And so Skye, in his book With, puts it this way. He says, throughout both his words and his actions, Jesus revealed the bankruptcy of the life under God posture. It does not deliver us from fear. It cannot reconnect us with God. And in most cases, it only burdens people under the weight of guilt, fear, and empty religiosity. And religiosity means religion for the sake of Religion, just religion for the appearance of it. See, if we're living in life under God, we are trying to control God from a subservient position. And that is not the relationship that God desires with his people. And so, if you're reading, if you're listening to this and hearing this, or you're reading the book and you're wondering, well, what do we do next? How do we move out of a life under God posture? And there's going to be some themes that you're going to see in this series because moving out of any of the four postures towards life with God has some common elements, has some parts in unity. And the first thing that we always have to do to be able to move out of a posture and towards a posture of with God is we have to recognize the posture that we're in. We have to first see that what we're doing is an attempt to control God that is an attempt to gain what we want or gain what we feel we need. And so we have to recognize that first and recognize the flaws in that perspective, the flaws that all of us have in our view of God because all of us have an incomplete view of God to some level or another. But then what it takes to move out of the life under God is we have to replace it with something. We can't just shed it and discard it and expect that what we will find will be good. We actually have to make an active choice to say, I want to seek the life with God. The life where we are living in a relationship with God, in a relationship with Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit. And so the problem is, it's hard to see those that life with God when we are consumed with one of the, uh, the default postures. Because in our default postures, when we try to create a version of God that we can control with our devotion and faithfulness, we create a shadow of who God really is, and we prevent ourselves from experiencing God's love for us. Because our view of who God is, is dim and murky and incomplete. And so moving out of a life under God position, uh, posture, means we need to start to recognize what does life with God look like? And especially for those of us who have a tendency towards life under God, recognizing and experiencing God's love for us is one of the most powerful ways that will lead us out of life under God and towards life with God. And so the gospel we were just reading from and hearing from was written by one of Jesus' disciples and later apostle of the church, John. And later on in John's life, around the same time when he was writing his gospel down so it would be preserved for future generations like us, John wrote a series of letters that are also included in the New Testament. And the first letter is the longest of the three, and it was written uh, either to an individual church or to a group of churches meant to be circulated. And John is, talks a lot in this letter about experiencing God's love. And near the end of his letter, he summarizes God's love for us this way. This is the picture of God's love that he wants the early church and followers of Jesus to see and experience and grab to. He says, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. He says, if we live in the love that God has for us, then we are living in God and God is living in us. That is a picture of with, that is a picture of togetherness. And then he wraps up his summary by saying, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. And if we think back to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, what drove them to want to create an idol that they could worship and if they worship properly would bless them? It was their fear. They had fear that Moses had abandoned them, that Moses had gone up the mountain and wasn't coming back. And so they sought something to control. But when we dive into recognizing God's perfect love for us, this is a love that expels fear. It's not about muscling up more faith and more devotion, and in that we get um, faith over fear. No, it is faith that leads us to put our trust in God so we experience his love and in his love, we can have the comfort and security to know that no matter what happens in life, God's love endures. And the problem is, though, that the life under God ties our current circumstances to the level at which God loves us. And that is not true at all. God's love for us is unending. God's love for us is unshakable. God's love for us is something we cannot ignore and push aside. And we may try to put up barriers between us and God, but that never stops God from loving us. And so if we want to move away from a life under God, we have to let go of our attempts to control God with our devotion. We have to let go of our attempts to control God with our faithfulness, with our prayers, with our scripture reading. We have to let go of our our human desire to try to make bargains with God of saying, well, if I do this, then will you make this happen? And instead, we have to choose to dwell in God's perfect love that drives out all fear. Let me take a moment and pray for us. God, Some of us right now listening to this and some of us hearing this and watching this may be recognizing that we have lived in a life under God posture. And we know that that is not your desire for us, that your desire is life with us. And so God, I pray that you would help us to see the times and the ways in our lives where we would choose to rely on this life under God position instead of choosing to find our rest and security in the posture of being surrounded by your perfect love. God, I pray that you would help us to see your love and care for us and see that it is not dependent upon the circumstances we find ourselves in, but that your love is pure and unending and seeks to give us the security that nothing in this world can. And so, God, I pray for those of us that default to life under God, that we would get a taste and a picture of your perfect love for us, and that that would draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Next week, we're going to look at another of these four postures. We're going to dive into the posture that is life over God. And so I want to encourage you to think this week about where are the places where we have tried to make bargains with God? Where are the places where we have tried to use our devotion or our faithfulness to control God? And when we have that desire in us, when we feel that fear causing us to want to grab hold and take control, would you, help, um, would you challenge yourself to choose to let go instead and dwell in God's love? And so folks, next week we're going to tackle this life over God posture. Um, this is another one that is very prevalent, and so I hope that you'll join us online next week as we continue this series called With Um, Thank you for being here with us today. Hope you have a great week and see you online next Sunday.